Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to church. We're glad you're here. We continue our Epiphany series, Whatever Happens. And today we're going to look at the concept that courage happens. So as you know, our theme verse for this series comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him. So a couple of things that that doesn't say. It doesn't say all things are good. We know that. But it says that God can work in all things for the good uh, for those who love him. So when we say things like um, courage happens, we realize that courage doesn't just naturally happen. We often find ourselves lacking courage. We're full of fear or we're full of anxiety. And it can kind of paralyze us sometimes. But um, even in the case of an epiphany, which is the season in the church calendar, when uh, God was kind of manifest uh, before uh, someone, or if they saw some other kind of heavenly being, an angel, they often were gripped by fear. And so often in the biblical text, when someone has an epiphany, the first words they hear are, fear not, um, which is certainly part of the message today. But how do we fear not? Like We can't just kind of muster up more faith. We can't just kind of grab ourselves and shake ourselves is there some kind of practice that we could have that might ease our anxiety and kind of fill us with courage? So I'd like to start with a personal story of my own sense of anxiety and uh, kind of a lack of initiative caused by the paralysis that anxiety can give you. When I was in seminary, um, one of the things they want you to do before you graduate is to do an internship. So I did my internship at a hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was a hospital chaplain for about three months. Um, one of the things uh, they do there is they want you to kind of self-assess. They want you to be an adult learner, kind of set your own goals. And the final assessment, uh, they said, I had to list the things that I had learned. And the first thing I listed was, I learned that I do not want to be a hospital chaplain. <laughs> There are a lot of sick people in the hospital. There are a lot of tragedies going on. You know, people got cancer or they have, um, I was in a children's hospital. One of the floors was a children's hospital. You know, you get a two-year-old with AIDS or an 11-year-old with meningitis. Uh, it's just not what you want to see. It's just too, too much trauma. Um, so that's one of the things I learned. There was one day I was on call, and uh, this, this might be more than I want you to know, but um, sometimes, uh, out of my own anxiety, not feeling like I was pastoral enough or I had anything to say or, or that these people I didn't know needed me somehow in the room, they needed their doctors, their nurses, their families, but what was, you know, some 24-year-old kid just, you know, still in seminary going to offer them? I would sometimes hide out in the library. There was a library at the hospital and I would read books about pastoral care. That is awful. <laughs> I would be reading about how someone in the role I was supposed to be playing could be present and could pray and could be comforting to people. So one day I'm hiding out in the library, and as it turns out, I was on call. So it meant if a tragedy happens, I had the beeper. So the beeper buzzed, 
And off I went to T.C. Thompson's Children's Hospital. And in an, uh, an emergency room, there was an 11-year-old who they had already turned off life support. She was barely hanging on. She had overdosed on her grandmother's medicine. As far as we know, it was unintentional. She might have just been playing around. But in any case, she was um, minutes, really, from dying. In the room were her parents, her grandparents, uh, a nurse or two, a doctor kind of coming in and out, and me. I stood there for about 30 minutes, and I never said a word. I never introduced myself. I never offered a pastoral prayer. I never said a word of comfort. Other people did. The nurses were pastoral. The mother of the child was especially pastoral. Kind of cuddling her daughter and stroking her hair and telling her stories and, and saying her prayers. Saying, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. You're going to sit in the lap of Jesus. The way that educational system works, they want you to write these things. They call them verbatims, and it is exactly what it sounds like. You produce a report that says what room you were in, who was there, what time it was, what the ailment was, and then every single thing that was said by every single person. And then you have to hand it out to your other interns, and everyone takes a part, and you read it. So there I am sitting in the chaplain office with the other interns and our supervisors, and everyone has a part. Each nurse has a part, each doctor has a part, each family member has a part, even the mother. And after we're done reading, someone says, you left out what you said. I said, I didn't leave it out. I didn't say anything. Uh, they, they were less than uh, patient with me. That's not what they intend. But I learned something that day. I learned that sometimes our anxieties and our fear can paralyze us. And if it does paralyze us and we don't take initiative, we'll find ourselves ceasing to be who we are. Because what we do and who we are are kind of intricately related. You can't be the chaplain if you never say anything. If you never say a prayer, if you never offer words of comfort, if you never kind of engage people where they are. And so today, as we talk about courage happening, I want us to look at two biblical characters, sisters, uh, Mary and Martha. We're going to look at one account out of Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 10. And then after we finish that, we'll briefly look at another account in uh, John chapter 11. But beginning in Luke chapter 10, the story goes like this. And now as they went on their way, he, that's Jesus, entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. 
But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So I'm sure you've heard this account before. It's fairly popular. And for those of you who like to get things done, you're kind of type A, you make a list and you check it off, you've probably often felt like, Martha got the short end of the stick. I mean, let's be serious for a minute. If we don't have folks like Martha, things would never get done. And, and that's true. And I could actually preach a sermon solely on Martha and about how her work and her diligence and her initiative that she takes is what kind of makes the world go round. But it's interesting in this story anyway that Jesus says that Mary somehow, just by sitting there and listening, has chosen the better path, something that's more ultimate, something that can't be taken away from her. So you see, we all do our duties, right? We all find our ways to do what we have to do. I mean, look at yourself. You made it to church this Sunday morning. We can congratulate you. I'm sure you feed yourself and your children. You go to work. Uh, you show up uh, when friends are sick. Uh, you show up to celebrate uh, weddings and anniversaries and football games and all sorts of things. But how many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, don't find ourselves actually experiencing a fair amount of anxiety? Let's take work, for example. Work, and whether you love your job and you feel ultimately fulfilled in it, or whether you hate your job and you're really waiting for that better job to come along, we find ourselves sometimes anxious. Am I going to get the job done? Is the boss going to be pleased? Am I fit for this? Is there not someone else better that could do it? And am I going to make enough to make the ends meet? And so work, as important as it is, is not an ultimate concern. Time will come one day when it doesn't matter whether or not you're working. It's not an eternal concern. The same thing could even be said about our relationships. We love our relationships. We're committed to them. We find life in them. Uh, we want the people that we love to love us in return. But then sometimes we get anxious about that too. Have we treated them well? Have we found out that we're not as good as we hoped we were or thought we were, as we've kind of lashed out or neglected or found ourselves falling short in the relationship, and then we find ourselves concerned about the longevity of them? Will, will they make it? What happens if I lose them? What would happen to me? Would I be emotionally able to sustain myself? We're worried about ourselves. We think that we have to do something to somehow make ourselves better, more spiritually mature, 
wiser, more accomplished. We're kind of in struggle after struggle. So if it's not our work, our relationships, or ourselves, sometimes I find people that are just interested in pleasure. They're worried that they're not going to enjoy their lives. They're kind of seeking the next, you know, uh, opportunity to have fun. And so that's what life has become. And then, of course, they're, they're the cynics. They, they realize that all of this seeking for accomplishment whether in job or in relationship or in self-development or even, even in, in terms of entertaining ourselves in pleasure, they're like, oh, well, that's, this is all just striving for nothing. It all comes to an end. So I'm going to be unconcerned. I'm not going to be concerned about my job. I'm not going to be concerned about my relationships. I'm not going to be concerned about, about myself or about, about pleasure some kind of uh, stoicism, perhaps. Of course, the challenge there is, is that they, too, experience anxiety. They experience anxiety about being unconcerned. <laughs> right? They're committed so much to not having concern that they are anxious about not having it. So what is it about Mary that makes her the choice it seems to me that, that she has a singular concern. And that singular concern is an ultimate concern, an eternal concern to be with Jesus. So I don't want you to misunderstand me. I think there are a lot of things in our life that we have responsibilities for that we do concern ourselves with. But those are temporary concerns. And even if we try and move from our personal life into toward a more collective or social life, you, we might say, look, when Jesus fed the 5,000, does that not consecrate social concern, that we ought to be concerned with the needs of others? When Jesus heals the sick, does that not consecrate the idea of spiritual or physical health, that we ought to be concerned with with the health and the spiritual vitality of others. Um, these concerns, when Jesus uh, tells a parable and speaks the truth, does that not kind of consecrate the search for truth as a higher concern? So whether we're reading you know, Matthew or whether we're reading Aristotle, uh, truth, goodness, beauty, are these concerns not the higher concerns? And at the end of the day, I think that they're still not ultimate. That, that they're the highest versions of Martha's concerns, but they're still Martha's concerns, not Mary's. So herein writes the challenge, how do we define Mary's concern? Uh, Tillich, uh, in a sermon called The Ultimate Concern, uh, writes about this. Paul Tillich, he says, uh, and he struggles with it. He's like, he doesn't want to define ultimate concern as religion because if he does so, it'll be misunderstood. That people will think it's just about belief and practices. I have to believe these certain things. I have to practice this certain way. And somehow that will be an ultimate concern. I don't know how many of you have tried being Christian. 
Have you tried real hard? How's it going for you? Mm, sometimes okay, sometimes not okay. A lot of times, a lot of anxiety. Look, if, if it's creating anxiety, more anxiety in you, if it's not kind of filling you with courage, then it's not an ultimate concern. Tillich presses it one step further. He's like, I would say the ultimate concern is God, but even if I said God, I think people might misunderstand. Because I say God, and they think of this relationship that ends up being somehow utilitarian. Like it's good for you all to have a relationship with God because God can do stuff for you. Like if, if that's what we think loving God is about, then God just ends up being like a, a wealthy or capable friend who can help you out in time of need. God is more than that. God is more than what we think. It's more, God is more than what we say. God is more than what we imagine. God is kind of ultimate reality, kind of even beyond reality. So we can say this, that having ultimate concern, um, eternal concern, singular concern, is the goal then. And this is what it can do for you. It doesn't mean that the other concerns in your life just fade away. Like, you don't have to go to work anymore, or you, or you don't have to do your job, or you don't have to, um, you know, contribute to the relationship, um, whatever it is. That might mean taking out the trash, or fixing dinner, or getting up with the kids, or showing up uh, at a friend's house when things have gone wrong. All of those things in life still happen. That's part of what life is. But if we place our ultimate concern, I'll say, in God, defining God as not just our thoughts about God, but who God actually is, then the rest of these things get kind of mitigated. Time will come and time will go. But God will always be. Whatever trouble you're facing now will come to an end because it's confined by time. We all come to our own end. And so let's place our faith, let's place our trust, let's place our concern, our focus on that which is ultimate. And in doing so, the anxiety will start to ease. And you'll find yourself full of courage in ways that you could not have mustered yourself, in ways that you cannot generate yourself. I'm not talking about kind of fake courage, bravado, hubris. I'm talking about deep, godly courage. To, huh, going back to Tillich again, he calls it the courage to be. The courage to be you. To be the, the one and only human being that is you, that ever has been, that, ever, that is now or ever will be. There's just the one you, right? And when you put your ultimate concern in God, these other things will find, will find their place. Canonically, as we, as we read on um, in the New Testament, we'll find another story of Mary and Martha. And it's interesting to see 
uh, how that plays out. This is in uh, John chapter 11. It says this, uh, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. I've got to love Martha on this one. Lazarus is dead. Jesus knew he was sick. Maybe this afternoon or this week you should read John 11 and 12, the whole Lazarus story. Jesus finds out he's sick and he stays away for two days. He gives him time to die. And then he says to the disciples, we should go see Lazarus now. And they're like, well, that's kind of down around Jerusalem. Last time you were there, they're trying to stone you, kill you. And he's like, well, Lazarus is falling asleep and I want to wake him up. They seem to misunderstand because he said, well, if Lazarus is just sleeping, why do we need to go down there? Well, you don't need to go down there to wake him up. The guy will wake up on his own. And Jesus is like, uh, I'm sorry, guys, I was using a metaphor. It's not, a, it's not an exact translation, but it's pretty much what it says. So they get down there, and here comes Martha marching out to meet him. She hears he's, he's coming, and so she heads down the road to find him. And she's like, hey, Jesus, where have you been? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now let's just pause right there. That's a big statement of faith on her part. That's a huge statement of faith on her part. That had Jesus been there, he would have been able to do something to heal Lazarus, to keep him alive. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, there's a resurrection. There's a resurrection. How helpful is that? Listen, if somebody just experienced a death in their family, saying, oh, you'll see them one day, don't say that. <laughs> I know Jesus said something similar to that, but he was getting somewhere. Chances are you won't be. Just, sometimes just sitting in quiet is okay. She's like, well, I know there's a resurrection in the end. And Jesus says, you've misunderstood me, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. This is your ultimate concern. And then Martha says something that is remarkable. And in the Gospel of John, it is only on the lips of Martha. She says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. 
Now, I know this is a confession that we all make in Christian circles. We say that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, we actually call him Jesus Christ. Like that's his last name. Like he's the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. And then we get confused sometimes because Scripture will sometimes say Christ Jesus. And we think, oh, that must be formal, like when they put your first name in front of your last name, like Waddell, Robert. Christ, Christ is part of his identity, right? It's, it's what he's doing, right? He is the anointed one, and he has come as the deliverer. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's on the lips of Peter that we hear the Messianic confession, you are the Christ. Peter never says that in John's version of the story. It's Martha. So I'm, I'm telling this story to kind of complement the story from Luke because I want, I want you to know this. If you're one who are often concerned about uh, the regular things of life, things that need regular concern, I don't want you to be discouraged. I just want you to know that... <clears throat> In order to live a life of courage, to have the initiative to be a Christian, unlike my young seminarian self that kind of lacked initiative, if your ultimate concern is in Jesus and being with Jesus, then you'll find yourself eased of your fears and anxieties in ways that you can't anticipate or explain and you find yourself filled with courage. The courage to be. The courage to be you. The courage to be the you that God has created. To be the you that the rest of us need. Throughout this um, Epiphany series, we've been listening to testimonies of our fellow believers. Testimonies of how they have experienced um, an epiphany. They have experienced a, a manifestation of God. Whether that manifestation is a dream or a vision or, or a calling. Uh, we heard from uh, Joey and Alyssa about how they'll be going to um, Cyprus um, to kind of be the church. Uh, we heard from Angela and Rachel, both about times in which God has healed, or as we should say, times in which God cured and times in which God did not cure, but believing that in each of those cases, God can nevertheless still, still heal. We have another um, testimony uh, this time, we're going to just have you listen to it. It is a powerful testimony. It is a, a testimony of, of struggle and of suffering. Uh, and it is a testimony of an incredible epiphany. memory is watching my two friends being hit by a car. I was about four. I also remember being on the bottom bunk of my older brother's bunk beds and him touching me in places he shouldn't be 
As I grew older, I told my parents, and they never again allowed him alone with me or my sisters. Mom took us to church at times, but most of the time I went across the street by myself and went up front every week to ask Jesus in my heart. Jesus became less and less real in my life, and other things took his place. I was secretary of the freshman class and on student council. One of the boys took to me and asked me to skip school and go to a party. When I got there, I saw a lot of people I didn't know. I was offered alcohol and some pills. And the next thing I know, I was going to a bedroom with the boy that liked me. A couple more, maybe three guys came in. My guy put a gun to my head. They forced me to perform shameful acts with all of them. They took my keys and threw them out in the snow. They went to school and told everyone I did that on my own. And the, and the girlfriends that were there who knew the truth kept quiet because they stood by their guys. God sent me two loyal friends. They helped me through, and I graduated. But then I went out into a world of nightclubs, alcohol, and drugs. During that time, I met the love of my life. He became a Christian a few years into our relationship. He was sold out. I watched his life change and decided I wanted that in my life. We had two children, but the fairy tale came to an end one night. I got a call from my brother-in-law that my husband had been robbed and shot and that he didn't make it. I had a three-year-old and a six-month-old. I asked my sister to tend the kids and I stood at her window looking out to the heavens. Father, I can't do this without you. You'll have to carry me. I felt such a strong presence of God that I knew he heard me. He carried me again, especially when my beautiful 20-year-old daughter told me she was dating a woman. I was very cold in my response and told her that I thought God wanted me to react that way. But he called me up short and said, wait a minute, have I judged you? Your job is to love her unconditionally. Last Mother's Day, she called me from a walk on the beach in Hawaii. She said, I wanna thank you, mama. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. My amazing son took care of me after a heart attack at 55. My son took me in recently when I had to move here from Ohio. I am reminded of a song by Lauren Daigle. Mighty warrior, king of the fight. No matter what I face, you're by my side. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust in you. Because of Jesus, I have forgiven my brother, the boys that raped me, the kids that harassed me in school, the man that killed my husband. But most important, Jesus has forgiven me for all my sins that I chose in my life. That's the testimony of Susan Moon, uh, an Oasian, one of us. The artwork, of course, was by Bump, uh, Josh Galetta, our youth pastor. I find myself uh, lost for words again. Not because I'm not ready to take initiative, 
because sometimes words fail. That's different. I want you to know that life is hard. I get it. And, I, and it takes a lot of work to get through. I get that too. And uh, I'm not naive about the pressures and the, and the feelings that those situations in life can cause us. But ultimately, I believe there is Jesus. And I believe without striving, um, without worrying, we can come to the table and receive forgiveness and grace and mercy and acceptance in ways that can ultimately define who we are. And that will help, again, to, to mitigate the rest of those parts of our lives. We love you, Lord. And we are grateful. Lord, may our ultimate concern be on you. Pray, Lord, that all of our anxieties would be eased, that the work that needs to be done would be done, that the relationships that need to be mended would be mended, that you would fill us with your joy, that your joy may be our strength. In Jesus' precious name, amen.